However, when 9-11 happened, walking home after witnessing the towers collapsed, covered in that soot and debris of the terrorist attacks, I was no longer the person I was. I wasn't a 20-something carefree person living in New York City. Windows were covered in garbage bags to keep the soot and death and debris out. It just kept becoming worse and worse where I really started to develop some pretty significant PTSD. For me, the biggest thing was just being afraid to go to sleep and waking up the next morning, whether or not I'd still be alive. But no matter how much self-care I was really doing, I was still struggling and living too close to the edge of burnout. When we're living in states of hyperarousal all the time, it has a tremendous impact on our health, our well-being, our mental well-being. I was really struggling in my day in, day out and trying to pretend to be healthy, even though I was internally really struggling with heart issues and worried all the time about what was going on with my internal wiring. Scientists discovered that we have 40,000 neurons in our heart, which actually means that we have a heart brain and it can think and feel and perceive. When we've been teaching people from a cognitive perspective of just change your thoughts or just think positive, well, that sort of doesn't work. We're ending up with all these toxic relationships because they're not listening to their higher selves. This is your one divine life and no one gets to decide what you do with it. It's yours. everyone to Diary of an Empath. My next guest is Susan Zinn, also known as the Heart Therapist. She is a certified trauma and eating disorder specialist, a national speaker, a best-selling co-author, a media spokesperson, and the recipient of the President Obama's Volunteer Service Award. So man, I just want to roll out the red carpet for you. I hope that I did you justice. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I've been so looking forward to this time together. We've been following each other for a while. You've been following me. I've been following you. And it's nice to just like lay eyes on faces that we've had these connections with, especially within our colleagues and within our social media group. So thank you for coming. Yes. And I can't wait to hear more about your story and learn more about you too. So tell me a little bit about your background. I know you have a lot of interesting things that have happened to you in your past. And I really want everybody listening to kind of get an idea of who you are and some of the things that led you to where you are now. Great. Yes. So just to start off with, I'm a board certified national clinical counselor. And as you mentioned, I'm a certified trauma and eating disorder specialist. And I'm the founder of Westside Counseling Center in Los Angeles. But I also co-authored a book called The Epiphanies Project last year with other writers, exploring personal stories of trauma and adversity and getting over sort of that post-traumatic hump that sort of happens with trauma. And in that book, I shared that my story of 9-11, given it was the anniversary of the 20th anniversary last year of the terrorist attacks. And it's really how I became a trauma therapist and how I started with this work 20 years ago, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so I was reading a little bit about your story. And what I, I love is the vulnerability and just the openness that you talked about with your connections with 9-11. So tell me a little bit about that and how did that impact where you are now? Well, as you know, being a therapist, especially working with trauma survivors, it's a, it's a job that tends to have a prerequisite to walk through your own fire that's necessary to do the work. And it doesn't always, you don't choose it. It usually chooses you. And I felt that call after 9-11. So prior to 9-11, just to give you a little background, I was a behavior researcher and I interviewed thousands of young people around the world, helping brands understand youth culture. 
However, when 9-11 happened, walking home after witnessing the towers collapsed, covered in that soot and debris of the terrorist attacks, I entered what in anthropology, I guess the best way of describing it is really a liminal space, that space where I was no longer the person I was. I wasn't a 20-something carefree person living in New York City, but I wasn't who I was going to become next. I was sort of in this in-between space. And trauma has that way of kind of holding us hostage in between. We're sort of stuck. And that only just became more compounded after um, I had to get on the first flight to Detroit to see a client because business had to return to normal, just like we sort of experienced after after the pandemic as well. And I didn't really have the tools or skills to sort of manage being on an airplane after the terrorist attack just happened. Plus living so close to the blast, my windows were covered in garbage bags um, to keep the soot and death and debris out. Plus I had a tank at the end of my street where I had to show an ID to get into my apartment. And so there was just constant trauma around everywhere that I was. over those couple of months and it just kept becoming worse and worse where I really started to develop some pretty significant PTSD. And I think that it's oftentimes people don't really think about, they just think something happens and you get over it. They don't think about all the sense experiences that happen that really sort of just impact it, that it becomes that we're just sort of stuck in that present tense as if it's happening over and over again. And for me, the biggest thing was just being afraid to go to sleep and waking up the next morning, whether or not I'd still be alive. And especially having all this like stimulus that was constant reinforcing that. But the interesting thing that happened for me was I I didn't know how to get out of it. I just knew that I had to sort of do something and I couldn't, I wasn't functioning. And so I I wanted to help and I felt powerless. So I, I, started to work at a local fire station, which was in my neighborhood in the Lower East Side called Fort Pitt. And it was interesting because the more time I I spent there, like bringing cookies or or lunch or any time just to go over and express appreciation, I got to know these guys as firefighters. And it was amazing to me to see the sort of humanness that sort of happened with them, that they were going down to what was termed the pit at the time, which was where the terrorist attack happened and, and the buildings collapsed. And they were coming back and they were still being human and having life and eating meals with their families and talking and laughing. And there was something really powerful in all of that because I think that I never really thought about a job with working in victim services simply because I was afraid that it would quote unquote damage me or that you know it would change who I was fundamentally, which I know a lot of people fear. But I experienced actually the complete opposite. And I really became fascinated with how these firefighters were having so much humanness and they had this formula for really understanding what mattered, which was community, kindness, being of service to others. And that really led to me sort of having what I think in psychology we talk about that vicarious transformation where I really wanted to sort of be part of this work and feel like I can make an impact. And that led me to start working in the ER with victim services as a rape crisis counselor in St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City in the West Village right after that too. And then later to Planned Parenthood. 
That's amazing. And I think there's a lot of resilience when it comes to people who have gone through trauma. And I think oftentimes we don't realize how resilient we can be until we're faced with adversity. And I love that you found peace and healing through helping others and almost kind of like feeling fulfilled and finding your purpose in a way. And oftentimes, I think we find purpose in very strange ways or ways that we don't expect. Once you get on your path, it just kind of propels you into this this healing journey. And sometimes it involves helping others. I know that's how it was for me. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing, that's kind of what it was for you. And you found resiliency through seeing these firefighters and seeing these other people get through life and still moving forward and still helping others. So I love that. I know for you too, you talked about how going through your journey of healing and helping others that you found yourself having your own health issues. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's about eight years ago. So this is kind of fast forward a good decade plus. I I thought I was suffering from some pretty debilitating general anxiety disorder. And I know a lot of people that work in trauma work will talk about that of having a lot of anxiety simply because it's a nature of our job. And like a lot of helping professionals, we're not always great about self-care and boundaries, even though it's something that's drilled in our head from day one. And I had really de- developed a reputation of being someone who could thrive in emergency situ- situations and catastrophic events like school shootings or natural disasters, the ER, working with first responders, rape victims, veteran EMTs. That was really where my specialty lied. And so I kind of just normalized having anxiety as just being part of the job. What happened is, is that just as vicarious transformation can change your life, unfortunately, the opposite can happen with vicarious traumatization. And you and I are both really familiar with that. And it's something that we're we're very trained to be mindful of and really working on. But unfortunately, it can just humble you in a blink of an eye. And it can have an impact the more that you're doing this work of being in crisis situations and chronic stress on your own body as you're helping other people. And that that's really what happened with me. And, and just to give you that, what vicarious traumatization, in case anyone doesn't really know what that is, sometimes it can be called compassion fatigue or secondary trauma stress, but really no way, no matter how you define it, it's an occupational hazard and challenge for people working in victim services. So that was really sort of for me, you know, when I, I sort of had normalized and I had worked really hard on kind of learning somatic practices, but no matter how much self-care I was really doing, I was still struggling and, and living too close to the edge of burnout, which unfortunately I am not special. I think that the average these days is something of 75% of mental health practitioners experiencing signs of burnout post COVID. And I was right in there with all of that. So that even though I was thinking was anxiety, it later turned out that I unfortunately had a heart issue called SVT, which means that my electricity of my heart was beating incorrectly. And so it would go up to upwards of 240 beats per minute. And that led to five years of me having three heart surgeries, the last one being um, a 17 hour surgery with 35 ablations, which is basically scars on my heart to correct the wiring that was happening. and. And I think that that's important to kind of know because oftentimes people think that stress is something that's isolated, 
But when we're living in states of hyperarousal all the time, it has a tremendous impact on our health, our well-being, our mental well-being, and, and even our physical health. And it wasn't something being a young person that I really thought much about. I didn't think that how could I be, what I would be doing was really having this impact on my heart to such a severity that when I woke up from that surgery, they said I was supposed to have a pacemaker in six months. So my quality of living was just really super bad at the time. And I was just trying to struggle to kind of hold it together. Wow. I mean, and, and for those that can't see Susan, she's quite young. So, you know, for the, for somebody your age and to be as young as you are to have these problems, these heart problems that we usually typically see in 60 plus, that to me, it's got to be life-changing and life-altering. And, and did it change the way that you looked at life and how you looked at how you dealt with stress? Yes. And also too, I think that it's important that when you are sick, um, and even if you tell them what you do for a living, stress, unfortunately, is not something that the medical community really talks about, and particularly traumatic stress, right? The emotional or the mental impact that things have on our bodies. And so even though my doctors were all clearly aware of what I did for a living, there really wasn't any discussion about like re reduction of anything. It was really left up to medical science. So I was really kind of over those five years, even though I couldn't walk up the street without my heart rates going up to 240 and externally passing in my life of looking like a super healthy person and still working and doing everything that I did in my life, I was really struggling in my day in, day out and trying to pretend to be healthy, even though I was internally really struggling with heart issues and worried all the time about what was going on with my internal wiring. But I think that when I woke up from that surgery and it's not something that I've shared in the public yet, but I, I did have a near death experience. I did wake up from that surgery and said, okay, whatever's been going on in my life has to end. And I want to experience something different because this isn't living. And I was really just surviving. I was getting through every single day and hope that I would wake up the next day, just like a lot of people do in trauma. Um, but I wasn't really living joyfully. I wasn't even living to be frank. And so that really started me on this whole healing journey of really understanding and, and doing what I do best, which is research and figuring out if there was another way to really heal my heart other than getting a pacemaker or leaving up to medical science to advance, because I was also a case study at UCLA. They couldn't figure out why my heart was, was so erratic and why it was sort of misfiring and having all these sort of electric issues all the time. It was really sort of this medical mystery. So I started doing research and I stumbled upon the Heart Math Institute, kind of Googled up heart and luckily found the Heart Math Institute, which they have been doing research on the intelligence and the power of the heart for 30 years. But I didn't know anything about them. It wasn't something that I understood. I had done all this training about our cognition and, and our neuroplasticity and understanding the brain, but it wasn't something that I ever thought about with the heart. And so as I started more neurocardiology, which is our nervous system and our heart connection, that I started to learn that it wasn't until 1991 that scientists discovered that we have 40,000 neurons in our heart, which actually means that we have a heart brain and it can think and feel and perceive. And that's where intu our intuition comes from. And that's when you get that sense that something just feels right. So Prior to this, like scientists really thought that our intelligence was only in our brain and our heart was just a pump. And 
researchers started to learn this power of our heart and it communicates more to the brain than the other way around. So once I started to learn that, I just became amazed with the heart and how it worked and operated and realized that I had been so dependent on these 60,000 thoughts that we have every single day, 80% of them being negative and 95% of them being repetitive. And I was trying to force my way into thinking positively or thinking healthy or getting over something that I had witnessed without really understanding this sort of magnetic, amazing power that we have right within our heart and within our bodies, which is actually a superpower. And so that kind of led me all to it. And just the more I learned that we have three feet of energy around us at all times, um, that can be measured and it's 55,000 times the magnetic energy that it is of our brain that just kind of kept me getting more and more interested and more interested in that I can be reliant on making changes in my life that I can really alter the way I'm processing stress and trauma myself versus relying on medicine or medication. And that's, that's really where my whole journey becoming the heart therapist and why I became so invested in sort of helping people through that modality and, and understanding that they have a completely unutilized aspect of their lives and, and their bodies that they didn't even realize before. I love that. I wrote some things down because there was a lot of things that you said that I kind of had these, these light bulb moments. We definitely live in like this hustle culture, this burnout culture, and it's almost become the norm of you need to hustle hard, you need to work hard. And I think a lot of us too, and you probably can relate. I know for me, I've struggled with perfectionism and needing to hustle. And as a healer, as somebody who works in a similar field as you do, I worked in the ED, I've worked in the hospital setting for many years, I've worked in mental health. And I think when you are working with trauma and working with patients who have dealt with trauma, we tend to be our last patients. I can preach things all day. You need to meditate. You need to do this. But then oftentimes I find myself slipping <laughs> because I'm always the one helping other people, but I tend to help myself last. And so I like that you pointed that out because we do live in a very high burnout culture. And another thing that you said too, that stood out to me is what came to my mind is about toxic positivity. We always hear these phrases of like, just be positive, just think positively. And while that sounds easy and it sounds easier said than done, it's really not that simple for many of us. And I think that the medical community and the mental health community are somewhat separated when they really should be working together in conjunction because it's a mind-body-spirit connection. And when you talked about how really our aura is measurable, it really is. Like a lot of people think it's just like spiritual bullshit, but it's really not. A lot of this is very measurable and there's core spots in our body that really have more power than what we think it does. So tell me a little bit about what role the heart plays in all this, because I know you mentioned that you went on to do some research and how the heart can, what the heart can play in terms of a role, but in terms of stress, how is that affecting the heart and how is the heart affecting the body? Well, I think that what you so beautifully talked about is just how we've been conditioned within our culture. The last time we had any education on emotional intelligence, we were in preschool. It's just not something that we talk about. And so, and we've been so brain focused. We've had so much advancements with neuroscience over the past couple of decades that that's really where all of our interest has lied. And it's fascinating. The brain is amazing. And I all day long can be so interested in it. But I think that it's also really important to know that when we've been 
teaching people from a cognitive perspective of just change your thoughts or just think positively. Well, that sort of doesn't work. It's like trying to tell someone to catch air, right? You, you can't. The more that you focus on something, the more your brain will go to. So whatever it is that your brain is focused on, that's when it becomes hyper-focused. And so with that, that, that's really where it becomes dangerous because people think that there's something wrong with them. They're defective. They are broken. They can't do this thing that everyone else can somehow be, somehow be mindful or, or practice mindfulness and how they can't do it or how they're stuck in their trauma. It really becomes quite debilitating. And when we're seeing these rates of anxiety growing in our youth culture, I'm really curious if that has a lot of impact on just how we're teaching people that mind-body connection. So when I learned that we have this other crazy superpower that really it's only been the past decade that science has really even been exploring, that's where I started to be really interested because I think that we also, even in relationships, we tell people all the time, well, butterflies means that you're in love. Well, it doesn't. It means your heart rate is actually beating really fast, which means I don't feel safe, which case means run away from this person. But we red flag that because we've romanticized that in movies and we're like, oh, that's feeling that you get is so euphoric. Well, stress and love and anxiety can feel awfully alike in the body. And we were teaching people and children and teenagers how to misread those signs all the time. And we're, we're ending up with all these toxic relationships because they're not listening to their higher selves. So really, when I start to understand, first of all, oh, I, if my heart beats faster or it beats slower, that's first of all communicating something to me, right? And that's something just fundamental that I should be paying attention to and sort of adjusting my life accordingly. It's so simple. I mean, these are really sort of micro changes that can have huge impacts on your life. But then when I started getting into coherence, and that's what the heart math has really been exploring and discovering for the past 30, 30 years, which is the heart-brain-emotion connection and when they're in balance. That's really when you start to listen to your intuitive guidance, which is your heart, and you start to listen to those body signals, allowing you to live more authentically. And it makes you feel less stressed, clearer, set healthy boundaries, make you feel like you have more control and agency over your energy and how you wanna feel in a moment to moment. And so there are all these little small techniques that you can do, like simply for me, it just started with something really simple. I literally put my hands on my heart and I started to focus on that because my brain then started to focus on my heart. Because again, remember, when our brain focuses on something, it becomes that micro focus. So rather than being worried about what was going on or being nervous or being upset or being traumatized by something, I put my hands on my heart and it allowed me to remember that I was a human being and that this beats before my brain, my heart beats before my brain. And when I started to focus on that, that's when I started to really kind of start connecting with, oh, I can have agency and control over my feelings and emotions. They're not happening to me. So to get more into it, we're sort of like a battery. We either have depleting feelings and emotions or renewing. And the more that you focus on your heart, which, and you focus on sort of breathing in your, your, into your heart, those positive renewing feelings and emotion, like joy, gratitude, appreciation, love, and care. And you allow that to, to move through your entire body through that type of meditation. It actually starts to change you on a cellular level. It actually starts to renew that battery and recharge you versus anxiety, depression, stress, rage. Those all deplete you. 
And so that's what I started to kind of learn how to manipulate and get more in control of versus going in a job, being in a situation where there's been a school shooting, feeling totally hyper aroused the whole time as if it's happening to me. And I'm, I'm in it with everyone that just went through this catastrophic event. My heart is going out of control. I can't control what's going on in my body. It's taking me days and days afterwards to get regulated. In that moment, I started just putting my hands on my heart and started to breathe through and go, I'm safe. I'm here. I'm present. I can start to think about my puppy or the time that we're going to spend together or being outside in the sunshine and utilizing those feelings and emotions from my past allowed me to regulate in real time and started to change how I was feeling. And the more and the more that I did it, the more and more I felt amazing. It wasn't just saying I should feel positive or it wasn't saying that toxic positivity that I should, you know, it be experiencing something or I should anything. It was actually, I was teaching my body how to get into those states in real time in order to change my physiological states. I love that. That's beautiful. Cause I, I think too, that a lot of people don't realize that energy can stay stagnant in the body. And oftentimes when someone goes through trauma, you will do everything to avoid it. I mean, that's like the common symptom of PTSD is avoidance. You know, we don't, we don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel the pain that's that's associated with the trauma, but our body doesn't forget. So I love that you brought up how you need to pay attention to what your body is doing. So talk about what the nervous system's role is when it comes to trauma, because I think that we often forget that our nervous system plays a really vital role in our body. And a lot of people may not even know what this is. So I would love for you to to talk about that. I think it's really important for us just to define what trauma is, because a lot of times people they have all these different definitions. I can give you a technical definition, but I also really want to clarify and normalize that trauma happens to all of us. And I think that's really important. And especially after the pandemic, every single person on the entire planet has experienced a traumatic event. No one can say that they were immune from it. So I think that's something that we really need to get to be further educated and aware and understand the impact on our body and our nervous system. But the technical term for trauma is it's the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope, causing feelings of helplessness, diminishing their sense of self or their ability to feel in full range of emotions and experiences. And that last part is super, super important because that is sort of the impact on the nervous system. So a traumatic event pushes the nervous system outside its ability to regulate itself. And for some, this system gets stuck on an on position, like a switch. And the person is overstimulated and unable to calm themselves. So they're feeling anxiety, anger, restlessness, panic, and they stay in that fight or flight mode. So it's like feeling like you're having a tiger on your lap all the time when really our nervous system is only supposed to be in a state of hyperarousal, which means that all of our blood flow is going up to our heart to pump, to have our eyes dilated so that we can run fast or we can fight a tiger or whatever it may be that's actually causing us to feel in danger. In which case, the blood flow can't go to all of our organs and all of our body at once. So it cuts off the blood flow to our digestion, it cuts off to our sex organs. And so, and if you're staying in those, in those, uh, in that state for prolonged periods of time, which a lot of people who've experienced trauma, they're in that stuck position as if it's happening to them now, then that's really where you get this sort of tremendous wear and tear and, and impact on our physiological 
body because the body is just working such overtime to pump all this blood, but then actually not allowing us to digest our food. And that's why lots of people have all kinds of stomach issues that have experienced trauma or, uh, or, or sexual, sexual dysfunction, or, and that leads to inflammation in the body. And we continue to kind of go on because inflammation then leads to immune issues and can even lead to Mm -hmm. things like in my case, it was heart issues, but for others, it could even be as severe as, as, as cancer. I didn't even think about that. That is such a good point of the connection that trauma can have on physical health and inflammation because, man, I have lupus. I have so much inflammation issues, and I know that that's got to be connected to other things because I have no genetic history of it. And you know, I work with veterans for a long time. I still work with veterans at the VA. I do it part-time. And the connections of the veterans that I see that have physical ailments, and a lot of them are similar. And I also notice a difference between Vietnam vets versus OIF, OEF vets versus when I had World War II vets. And you see different diseases and different ailments that affect the different generations depending on some of the things that they've been exposed to. Were they exposed to Agent Orange? Were they in hand-to-hand combat? All of those stressors. And I love how you talked about how that could play a key role because oftentimes we don't think about that. Another thing you mentioned was butterflies and how in relationships we kind of associate that with this romanticized view of how we can view relationships. So that must be love. And I talk about this a lot, how we have to pay attention to our body and how we feel around certain people. Because I feel like if you've, people have this view of trauma as it's only one event. And that's not always the case because you can be exposed to chronic stress over a long period of time, let's say as a child, and this can now affect you as an adult. So talk to me a little bit about how the nervous system might play a role or how the body might play a role when it comes to trauma and then relationships. Real quick, everybody, I want to share a product that I have been using, and most of you know that I am very ethical. I do not share recommendations or products unless it's something that I feel works, and I have been trying to look for a product that helps with focus because I do love my coffee. I am a caffeine drinker, but lately it hasn't been enough. I caught COVID a couple months ago. As you guys know, it was my second time within three months having it, and ever since then, I have been having a difficult time focusing. So I came across this product. I figured I would try it. I've been doing it for about two weeks now. It's called Magic Mind. It is a shot that you take every morning. You got to take it for about a week to really see the effects. But what I like about it is it's not something that's going to get you up. Like it's not like downing a bang, but when you take it, it really gets you dialed in and you can take it alongside with your coffee. So I've been drinking my coffee in the morning. I take a shot of Magic Mind and I would say within about 20 to 30 minutes, I start feeling just calmer more focused. Another thing that I like about this is that it's all natural. So it has, we always hear the terms all natural, right? But it has products that actually have backed up science and data to back up its claims. Ingredients like ashkawanda, matcha, honey, adaptogens. So if you're interested in the product, you can go to magicmind.co, enter the code empath for 20% off. Let me know how you like it. I want to hear from all of you. Does it really work for you? Is it helping you? Because this is something that I'm going to continue using. I feel like it's helping me and I want the same for each and every one of you. Okay. Back to the podcast. Yes. I mean, and I loved your post recently that you talked about sex 
with energy. I think that that really speaks to this, that there's such an importance of really understanding what's happening to us and how that unconsciously, again, if we're leaving it up to our brain, we kind of make these decisions that because our brain loves patterns and habits. And so when something feels really familiar, all of a sudden we're really energetically attracted to someone because we're like, wow, this feels, this feels good. This feels really familiar. Um, and we may have just stepped into a narcissistic abusive relationship. What sort of happens with our nervous system is that, especially when you've experienced trauma and sort of is that our sense of safety gets really disoriented. We're not sure if, you know, what is real and what's not. We don't, we, we also start to not trust ourselves, our intuition, that hard intuition. We don't trust it and we override it based on sort of past experiences. Um, and so we get really flooded. And so we dismiss red flags. We dismiss signals that something isn't safe or even when there's healthy, secure, attached relationships that we can dismiss those as being something because it makes our bodies feel so uncomfortable to be in a safe, loving relationship because it's unfamiliar. And so we start to sort of get these intolerance for sort of safety because it's so foreign, because it's not something to your point when you've experienced childhood trauma, or if you've actually experienced lots of trauma, you could have had a secure, healthy childhood and then had traumatic incidents that happened over and over again that changed your neurochemistry. So, and so we have to understand that that goes both ways. It's not just childhood to health. It's, it can go the other way as well. So with that, then our nervous system starts to kind of misfire and tell us all kinds of different information that we end up actually not really feeling into what feels safe or feels good until we can start to override that those old traumas or old triggers to actually start to understand that we can have secure attachments. And I, I think we're both so lucky that we get to witness that all the time in our practice when we have clients who have been through the unthinkable, like the clients that you've mentioned that you work with at, at the VA or in my practice. And then all of a sudden they get into these loving, amazing relationships, but it takes a lot of energy and time and commitment and consciousness in order for them to take those steps because all along the way, it feels really unsafe to them. Yeah, it's unfamiliar because if you're constantly in a state of hyperarousal and you may not know that, that literally might be your normal right? So if your nervous system is always on high alert and that's your normal, and now you're going into relationships as an adult, that's your association with love. It's, it, it might be. And so I've been in situations where I've met a quote unquote, normal person, healthy person, somebody who wasn't toxic or didn't bring any unhealthy energy to my life. And I found myself getting a little bored. I'm like, well, this isn't, feeling, I don't feel no butterflies. I'm not feeling anything. So maybe this guy is boring. So I feel like I've been through those situations and now I have to be really careful about how I view relationships, how my body is feeling and what my body is telling me about these relationships. And, and one thing I also noticed too, is paying attention to my mood. And I see this a lot with my patients when it comes to trauma. I think oftentimes we don't think about how trauma can affect someone's personality and their mood through everyday life. But what's that connection there? And have you seen that there is a connection between trauma and someone's personality and or their mood? I think it's such a great point. And I always like to rely on science because I think that if we understand what's going on, then it can help, help us make better decisions. 
right? So the fact is, is trauma affects the oxytocin in the nervous system, and it can make you reactive to stressors, affect your mood or affect triggers, but it also is your hormones and cortisol levels as well. So it can kind of take you on that whole roller coaster that you experience with moods. And I think once you start to understand that, that again, our brain loves patterns and routines and it doesn't like change. And even when it feels good to your point. So when we're having sort of these imbalances within our biology, then that sort of impacts everything around. And so again, that's why really going back to the heart is so important because if we're starting to regulate our heart rate variability and we're getting into sort of these higher states where we're sort of in more coherence, where we are noticing what's going on with us biologically, and then we're making different steps and decisions in order to feel more optimal, then we start to override these old pro- programming where our, our, our biology is and our, the chemicals in our, in our nervous system is actually misfiring as if we're in trauma all the time. And we can get to those healthier states where unfortunately it's a lot more boring <laughs> and it's not the excitement of the butterflies, but it, it, that's in the immediate as we're in that transition. But in the long run, we are health, we're healthier, we're happier. We are so much more joyful because we have agency and choice over our lives. And then we get to choose to put ourselves in those states of going on roller coasters or doing things that are feeling like thrilling, where we're actually jacking our nervous system for these momentary things for, for that high versus actually living day in, day out, which is actually just causing havoc on our nervous system and our mind, our thoughts, and we're just not living our optimal selves. I love that you mentioned there's things that you can do to maybe choose to have those influxes of dopamine or other hormones. Like if you want the adrenaline rush to go on a roller coaster or to do other things, I wrote it down. I wrote down dopamine because I feel like, and I, and this may be out of your scope, but I still feel like it's a very interesting topic. Cause when I think about dopamine, I think about the reward system in our brain. And sometimes I feel and wonder that some people may in fact be a little bit addicted to that high, a little bit addicted to that toxicity that might even be in their life. Um, not necessarily necessarily addicted to the trauma itself, but addicted to what comes with those toxic cycles, that excitement, those, those rushes of dopamine and serotonin and all those things that happen and their nervous system being activated, even though it may not be good for the body. I know for me, when I was in those cycles, it was almost like this, okay, when I would get this love bombing and these toxic ups and downs, it would go from like these highs and lows. But when I would get it, it felt great. I'm like, yes, this is what I wanted. And it's almost like I was addicted to the overactive nervous system. It's what I yearned for. It was what was familiar to me. And I wrote down dopamine because a lot of people don't think about the things that are happening in the brain, the things that are happening in the gut, the things that are happening in the heart, it's not necessarily just feelings. Like this is from a biochemical standpoint of things that are happening in your body when you go through trauma and is now affecting you 20 years later. I I would love to get your thoughts on that. Yes. I mean, I think the thing is, is also to your point so beautifully said is really understanding the impact of dopamine and how we can utilize it. Because the fact is, is that when you're getting a high to feel alive after you've experienced trauma, that's just what you want to feel. You want to feel because you may have felt dead in or disconnected because again, those oxytocin levels are diminished, especially when you've been through traumatic situations as a child. And unfortunately, 
one in four girls and one in 10 boys are sexually assaulted before the age of 18. And that's what's reported. So there's a lot of people that have been through some pretty traumatic, and that's just one area situation, let alone everything else. Um, and so what happens is that they've, they've sort of shut down their ability to feel, or they've shut down their ability to sort of regulate and sort of connect. And so when you get this dopamine high, and, and the brain doesn't know the difference between reality and fiction, doesn't realize when we're watching a horror movie that that's not happening to us, or we're witnessing something that that's not actually happening to us. It's that's why we're intrigued and fascinated by all these things that are like dopamine kind of inducing. But we start to play with that because it makes us feel alive and get us out of these feelings of sort of feeling dumb, dead in or numbed out. It's why so many people with eating disorders or addiction, you know, struggles that what they're trying to do is numb out because they don't want to feel, they don't want to feel the pain. And so when you get dopamine, even if it's from love bombing that you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm going to, you know, this person now is going to love me. And this is fairy tales and unicorns. And like, this is what I've always dreamed about. And you get so sucked into that so quickly. And I'm so glad the mental health community is talking more and more about that now, because all of a sudden you, you don't know what happened and you're in a narcissistic abusive relationship because, and it, that felt so good in the beginning. Um, and how'd you get there? And so I think that to really understand that impact of dopamine, and there are ways for us to really start to think about scheduling dopamine. I'm a really big believer in that. And also too, that helps us with our motivation and focus, especially if you're a trauma survivor, because one of the things when your, your system is overwhelmed or you've been traumatized, your ability to think clearly, again, as I'm talking about that heart, mind, and emotion connection, that when your body's dysregulated and it's pumping all this blood to your heart in order for you to be in that fight or flight, your thoughts are going to be disorganized and you're not going to be able to focus. So you can't think clearly to make good decisions. And so when you are actually scheduling dopamine or you're scheduling something in and you're making it a routine and a habit, your body can then start to anticipate it. This is going to feel good. Or you also create the randomness of, all right, every single time I, I, I do well on something or I achieve, um, you have to kind of move the goalpost, right? So it's not like, oh, I did something and then I get the reward system all the time because then there's too much anticipation, which actually takes away the dopamine. You want to make that dopamine scheduling random in order to actually make it feel even better than kind of always anticipating getting the reward. So what would that look like? So for those that are listening that are like, okay, well, what would I do? Let's give a solid example of what scheduling dopamine may look like. So I'll just give an example of say you're going to the gym and, and your goal is to learn how to run two miles under, I don't know, you tell me the, um, uh, under eight 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. 30 yeah. minutes. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> A mile under eight minutes or something, 10 minutes. Okay. So, and every time you do that, then you start giving yourself a reward. Oh, I get a smoothie every single time I do that, or I get to do this, you know, something that's sort of a reward circuitry that you start to create a pattern between the two of them versus actually making it unpredictable and random where it actually feels more exciting for us. So maybe it's every sixth time you run that mile under 10 minutes that you actually get the smoothie. And that's actually what helps us with focus and motivation too, because we're not always anticipating that we're going to get the reward. 
We're not anticipating that we're going to get the dopamine that we want from something, but there's an unpredictability of whether or not it's going to happen. And is it going to happen this time? That's why actually anticipation is so enticing. And that is so much part of the reward circuitry that goes on is because we're thinking about, we're spending time emotionally invested in and fantasizing about what's going to happen. And that actually is so pleasurable as well too. And that actually really impacts our brain as well. Yeah. So I think about my podcast, like, I don't know if I'm going to get on the charts. I might have an episode that does amazing. And then I might have an episode where I don't get on as many. It's kind of like that anticipation. But when I do, I'm like, yes. And that gives me motivation and to keep going because this is, it is a lot of work to do this. So that is what typically keeps me going because I'm probably getting those dopamine rewards. But another thing that stood out to me when you were talking about how, addiction can sometimes be used in order to mask our trauma so we don't have to feel things. And I think an addiction that we often don't talk about or don't think about is social media. And when we're on social media, it's designed to keep us online. That's literally what it's designed to do. And when you're on and you're scrolling, you're getting these dopamine kicks. And I know for me, a lot of people don't think about it as an addiction or what's the relation with trauma and social media. But I can just tell you for me, from my perspective, and I am somebody who has a history of trauma, social media is a big issue for me to the point where I noticeably had to have a conversation with myself to say, okay, you need to schedule your time on social media. You need to schedule your time to check your emails. You don't need to check your emails every single hour because it was becoming an addiction to dopamine. And it was those, those dopamine kicks that I was getting every time I was on social media. Like, what is the real reason that I'm on here? Am I just trying to like mask my time? Yeah, because I'm a little lonely or am I, you know, I'm not being activated in any way. And it's uncomfortable not feeling activated. It's uncomfortable sitting here with my own thoughts. It's uncomfortable not having anything to do, not having anything to pick up, not having anyone to talk to. And so I found myself my addiction was picking up my phone because I wanted to connect or I wanted to constantly have that connection. So what are your thoughts on that? I'm just curious. Do you think that there's a connection when it comes to trauma and even subtle things like social media? Yes. I think that's such a beautiful example. And thank you so much for sharing that. The fact is, I don't know exactly. I'm going to get the research number. I'm not sure if it's hundred percent accurate, but it's closest to what I remember that we actually on average pick up our phone 304 times a day. And so the other really interesting thing, cause we're talking about dopamine and we're talking about focus and mo motivation is every single time we pick up our phone, it takes our brain 23 minutes to refocus. So when we're talking about an ADD, ADD or ADH nation, and we've got basically a phone that we're connected to at all times that we're constantly checking our ability to focus and motivate it towards something is very, very challenging because it's all over the place. To your point, you're getting dopamine for not even doing anything. You're giving yourself a reward for not doing anything, right? So I think that that's really the problem with it because you're like, I'm, again, your brain doesn't know the difference between reality and fiction. So you're artificially connecting with people that you don't know or you're getting pleasure seeking and dopamine from things that you're seeing and you're witnessing. I know I love those, like uh, those destination Instagrams all day long because they're so beautiful. And I can say, I'm like, Oh gosh, it's amazing. I wish I was there. And you know, I'm kind of all in that. And next thing you know, it's 25 minutes later, because I've looked through every single one of their posts of all the destinations. 
But so that's why it's so important. And again, especially with people that have experienced trauma, that we get into schedules and routines, that we actually put ourselves on a uh, time limit. We have all those on the phone. We can put it, mine goes off. If I'm on there more than half an hour, it starts binging and I can't even do anything if I'm on there for more than a half an hour because it'll keep saying 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. But I think it's really important that we have those bumpers that our mind doesn't just go off on these fantasies and getting sucked into something. And then later on, we start to feel bad that we, we did that. But if you're consciously, again, I'm going to go back to agency and control. If you're consciously choosing that I'm spending a half an hour, 45 minutes, four hours, I don't care how much that time frame is, but you're consciously saying, this is what I'm going to do during this time period. And this is how I'm setting it up to really feel good in my life. And I'm making that choice, even when it's something that's bad for us, we still have to be consciously aware of the choices that we're making. And we have to have more agency over that than thinking that things are just happening to us, or I don't know what happened, or I don't know why I'm not motivated and I can't do my job, or I don't know why I'm not successful, or I don't know why I'm not working on that running goal. Well, let's look at it. You, you might've spent six hours on your phone today. And how are you possibly having time to do something that you set for yourself as an achievement or goal that you can get a lot more dopamine because we haven't put those bumpers around the things that are highly addictive. Oh, yes. I like, I feel almost like a part of me. I'm like, yes, I'm so there with you. And then on the other side, I'm also that person. So like for everyone listening, it's, it's not your fault because I will say, yes, it is a choice too, but that's the system is designed to do that. It's literally like, if you look at Facebook or Instagram or any social media platform, it's a never ending scroll. And there's a reason why they do that. There's a really good book um, from Johan Hari called Stolen Focus. And for anyone listening, listening. I highly recommend that book because this is exactly what he talks about in the book. And he interviewed people and experts from around the world, anywhere from social media to focus. And he talked about how the system is designed to do this. And what will happen too is with the algorithms, when let's say you you watch a video that's like a little risque, you know, gets your, gets your hormones going, gets those dopamine flooding. What will happen is if you watch the video and you scroll to the next video, it'll be a little bit more controversial or a little bit more traumatic. And as you keep scrolling and scrolling, it gets more and more controversial or more and more traumatic as you continue scrolling, whichever topic that you're looking at. And the system is designed to do this in order to keep you on longer, in order to steal your attention and focus longer. And I think that when we're talking about the connection with trauma, one of the key things that you mentioned that stands out to me is the need to just want to disconnect or even the need to disconnect from the trauma, but connect with something, right? To feel alive, to feel something. And I think for some, they may rely on drugs and alcohol. And for some, it might be something so simple as your phone. And it's not even something that you think about. So I love those key things that you can do about maybe putting on the timer. I know there's locks you can buy for your phone. I have one because I have to use it. <laughs> and another thing that I have to use it, another thing that I found that works for me is instead of saying like, oh my God, I got to clean the kitchen today. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Instead, I break it down by time. I'm going to dedicate from 2 to 3.30 to do everything I can in that time frame. My phone's going to go in the other room. And for an hour and a half, I am going to focus on getting whatever I can done. And then when I did it for the hour and a half, and I'm like, I feel fulfilled. I did exactly what I was going to say I did. I'm not focusing on the project. 
like, oh, I got to do the whole thing. I'm just focusing on the fact that I'm going to dedicate this 90 minutes to focus solely on getting whatever I can done. And then whatever I don't get done will be for the next time. And I have found that that is helpful for me. Do you have any other tips and tricks that you can throw in for those that are listening? I think what you're talking about blocking time is so, so important. So first of all, of all of our senses, your ability to smell or touch something or hear something or taste something, it can be a question of whether or not that that's actually accurate or not. But for those that are seeing eye, when we have a visualization of something and we time block where we're going to get to your point, bringing back to dopamine, where we're going to get those hits of pleasure in our day. And we can see a system of maybe from uh, seven to eight, we're doing X or from nine to 10, we're doing cleaning the house. Um, but then after that, what's really important is to sort of also schedule in joy or scheduling and pleasure in your life. And so when we can kind of see those time blocks of how we're doing things that are hard work, and then we're also scheduling in pleasure or joy in our lives, it gives us a lot more motivation to do things. And then again, we start actually working on that circuitry to actually get more dopamine reward because we're achieving the things that we want. Plus we're actually blocking out time for joy. So for me personally, when I started on this whole journey, I have to say I was a complete workaholic. It's still something that I have to work on. Um, and the fact is, is that I was just surviving. I was doing everything. I was people pleasing with my own trauma. I didn't know how to say no. I was yes, 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 all day long. And I just was working nonstop. And so what happened is, is that I actually had to say in the morning when I wake up and I have a cup of coffee or a tea, or I just wake up and take a shower, I have to schedule in a moment for myself that is just for me, that's joyful. And it doesn't matter what it is. No one else gets to decide what that is. But for me, it, it's those simple things. And it was literally just sitting outside and like looking at a tree or going for a walk. I'm a huge believer in waking up in the morning and it's within the first 30 minutes of wake, the bilateral stimulation of walking, right? And actually within that, and the really cool thing is that I recently learned about this from Stanford Research that when we do that within the first 30 minutes of wake, not only because our anxiety and our cortisol levels are so high first thing in the morning, that we're actually reducing our anxiety levels and getting our nervous system to calm down and the amygdala to calm down in the brain, but also with that bilateral stimulation, which also mimics a lot of things like EMDR or other trauma-informed practices, that we're actually creating um, a system that our nervous system calms down and it increases our creativity by six zero percent six zero. That blew my mind. So for anyone that's creative, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer, I enjoy writing. I found that I started to set my day up where right after I did that walk that I started to sit down and write and my focus and concentration as I threw my phone up on the rooftop or in another room or locked it someplace else so I didn't get that distraction. I really found my writing and my creativity was so much more effective and sitting down and doing that 90 minute bout of concentrated work after that walk was a game changer for me. I love that. I love Dr. Huberman, by the way, at Stanford. He's um, an essential part of uh, the research there. And he talks about that a lot of getting light as soon as you wake up. And a lot of us don't think about that because we're so used to artificial light. But if you think about it, artificial light really hasn't been around that long. We as a species are used to getting up with the sunrise and going to sleep with the sunset. So, you know, naturally our bodies are attuned to that. And I don't think that we have been able to catch up with that. And if 
a lot of the research shows that when you are viewing light, when you're getting outside, this does increase your, your dopamine, your serotonin, all of these neurotransmitters in the body. And if you have a history of trauma, getting outside is really vital. And I know for everyone, that's not necessarily feasible depending on where you are at the world, but just even getting outside, if you can, and putting your bare feet on the ground or just viewing any type of light is so helpful. So I was like, when you were saying that, I'm like, yes, preach. <laughs> even this morning before I came on the podcast, it's the first thing I did. I put my phone in my room. I went outside. I sat out on my porch. I ate my breakfast and I drank my coffee and I just stood with myself for 30 minutes. And just doing that, I felt more awake than just having a normal cup of coffee. So I love that you brought that up. So for those that are listening who are resonating with all of this and they want to heal, but maybe they just don't know how to start their healing journey, where does somebody start? Well, I think that there's so many modalities within mental health that we've really advanced our trauma-informed care in such a massive way. So whether it's techniques from the HeartMath Institute or Havening Technique, which is one of my favorite, um, EMDR, somatic experiences, there's so many different modalities when you're in treatment to help you on your healing journey. But regardless of what those modalities are, and you brought this up before, is that connection. The most important is really that human connection. We saw that after the pandemic or during the pandemic when so many people were struggling because they didn't have contact with people or they were isolated. And so I keep repeating the same thing, but we have to get into some structure and routine. So if you can be in therapy and you find a, a trauma-informed therapist that can help you, that's amazing. That's also a relationship that you're building, which is primarily the most important part of the healing journey is being witnessed and being with someone else who can contain and help you and guide you through that healing process. But structure and routine are going to be essential. You brought up the science from, from Stanford of like how you set your intention of your day. When you are traumatized, you're going to wake up with probably a tremendous amount of anxiety in the morning and you know, that sort of starts your day and you're like, well, maybe I need to, um, drink more coffee to get more awake, or I need to do that. You know, you start making decisions that are not healthy. So structure and routine, blocking your time, even when you don't feel like doing something, you need to do it. Being in nature, connecting with people. I have a rule in my house, seven points of contact a day. That means hugs, or that means touching, or that means something. And there's points when as an introvert myself as well, that I can spend a lot of time alone and I will purposely make myself go out into the world and connect with someone else because I know I'm going to feel better afterwards, even though I don't want to, even though I can think of all the reasons not to, I still need to do that. So sometimes I even had clients that have been like hugging has been their thing. You know, they're so uncomfortable with it, but it gives them ability to have contact and be more present. Um, so structure and routine, that's really primary, even when you're starting therapy, what they're going to really focus on with a trauma-informed therapist. And then, you know, as I mentioned too, getting these moments of joy, we know that that's actually biologically changing. We're getting oxytocin, we're getting dopamine, we're getting that pleasure seeking that can get us out of those states of trauma and into feeling other states. And going back to your example about going out the first thing in the morning, what I'm really talking about in coherence is having that memory and that experience of something that's pleasurable where you felt safe and calm and it felt amazing and allowing that to grow and access throughout your day. And when something comes up that may be unpleasant, that you can go back to that moment and remember that and going, okay, this is hard right now, 
but I can go back to that feeling and emotion and allow myself to kind of marinate and be in the memory of it and allow that to kind of just breathe through my heart and breathe through my body in order to regulate my system and get back to a baseline of where, where I'm more in common peace. Um, exercise is tremendously important. So there, there's endless amount of things, but I think that if the simpler we sort of make things in the beginning of setting things up, when we start to see that there are sort of these biomarkers that we actually start to feel better, that gets us more motivated to actually become more and more invested in our healing journey. And then, you know, getting into the cognitions of why it happened or how it happened later on after we've already regulated our nervous system and our heart and connected that way. So then we have the ability to think through and kind of work on sort of that, the, the memory healing part of it. I love that. Cause it's not always about just going into therapy. Okay. Tell me what happened in your childhood. If you can focus on even things that you can do starting today and implement certain protocols within your life that you have control over that you have the power over, and it can be little things that can help you even prepare when you are ready to dive deeper into those issues. I love that. So Susan, tell me something that you would give advice to your younger self. I know that you yourself have been through so much and you have helped so many on your journey. What advice would you give younger Susan? I love that question. Um, I think if I was going to tell younger Susan, I would say that it, this is your one divine life and no one gets to decide what or how or, or what you do with it. It's yours. And with that, no matter what the, what's happened in her past, that I still get to choose to live joyfully. I still get to live the life that I choose, not on anyone else's terms. Um, because I think oftentimes, especially for young people, we're so attuned to making other people happy and, and making choices and decisions based on our ancestors or our parents or family and friends. And when we start to realize that it's our one divine life and we give ourselves more agency and control that in a moment to moment, we have the, we have the ability to sort of choose the life that we want to live, then everything changes and we just feel so much more calm and peace. I love that. That was beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I love this conversation. And I love that we talked about even things that weren't even really on the agenda that are just so helpful and so pertinent to um, trauma and the things that I think a lot of people have been through. So thank you for sharing your vulnerability and for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the next time too. 